morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are. This is Ali Amagasu, and you're listening to Cloud Unfiltered. This week, we have a non-Cisco guest. His name is Justin Garrison. He's a senior systems engineer with Disney Animation. Uh, he's also an author. I think that's what got him on our radar, was a book he recently wrote. So we're hoping to talk to him about uh, that book, about his involvement in open source communities, and a bunch of other things. Uh, welcome, Justin. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure, thank you for being on the show. Uh, so first off, as you know, I know you're a listener of the show. Um, why don't you tell us what got you into tech? Oh, tech in general uh, is, is kind of a long, uh, <laughs> a long tale, but the short of it is I was in college and needed to block off time to uh, do some homework. And so I started babysitting labs on the weekends. And I didn't have a computer at the time. I didn't ever really work on a computer. I just needed time and space to you know do stuff. And so there happened to be a lab across from my dorm room and I sat in there all day, Saturday and Sunday, did homework and then started learning about computers there. You are kidding. It was kind of random, but then from that, I started getting more involved, and they had like a whole student services uh, technology support kind of thing that I, I kind of started branching off. I people were showing me how to scan, you know, do virus scans and work with Linux and all these other things. So, but yeah, at the time, I, I didn't have a computer. Wow, I gotta say that is a pretty random uh, and late entry into um, computing for somebody who's as involved, you know, and accomplished as you are. Really, I'm surprised. I mean, a lot of people who are on the show are like, I was in the crib and, you know, my dad gave me a C++ book and we used to read it each night before I went to bed. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I definitely did not. Grow, I grew up actually elementary school typing on typewriters like that was we had typewriter and uh, that was what I did for papers and stuff like that. We got a computer that was kind of shared but never really worked so that someone handed to us and, and didn't really know how to work it. So. I did, too, for the record. I learned to type in seventh grade on an actual typewriter and then... And I did not have a computer for most of college. I think maybe my last year I had one. And oh my goodness, a compact something or another that was clunky and not all that useful, really. <laughs> so thank you for sharing. That's it, that's neat. I think it's it's cool to hear the angle of somebody who's you know succeeded as much as you have, and and just got into it in college. The world's not going to end. It's like um, with sports, right? If you don't start golfing when you're three, it doesn't mean you can't be a golf pro. You can start whenever you want. <laughs> so. So before we get into open source, I'll, I'll save that for a little bit later, but uh, tell me about your book. I see that you wrote a book about um, cloud native infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, what inspired you to write an entire book about that and what is in it? Um, most of it was, uh, I'm, I'm involved a lot with the, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation and the Kubernetes community. And someone that was already a part of uh, that community had been writing books for O'Reilly. And mm -hmm. they, I don't know why, they decided to recommend me as someone that uh, might be knowledgeable and might have something to say about infrastructure in a cloud environment. Uh, so they just reached out to me and said, hey, you ever interested in writing a book? And I, I never really thought about it. Um, but it sounded like a great challenge and a good way. I was doing a lot of blog posts, so I was like, well, maybe I can, you know, combine some of this stuff. And and so through, you know, doing O'Reilly, you know, pitching them for the book and having the editor come back and, and finding, you know, what that process was like. And then um, actually finding a co-author when, when the proposal was approved. And then from there, uh, Chris and I just kind of like worked through back and forth what outlines should look like and what, you know, kind of topics we wanted to address. And and the book changed a lot from where we originally had planned. We thought it was going to be very project focused and mm -hmm. much about the CNCF projects and just the tooling around why you would use a specific tool for a specific thing. And 
by the time we had written half of the draft, all of that was out of date. And the CNCF had more than doubled the amount of projects they had. And we just realized that wasn't a good, good idea. Um, so how did you shift? What, what did it become more strategic? It was, it was definitely, uh, you know, it, it was very, we had like chap two or three chapters on Kubernetes and one on logging and one on tracing and all these things. And it's just like, oh, that didn't really feel right because what are you actually going to learn? You're going to learn something that immediately is out of date. And so from there, after we submitted the first draft and we got some feedback, we realized like, oh, this, this isn't the way to go. So we started breaking that apart and saying, okay, what is the patterns? Like what are, what's really, why did Kubernetes do this this way? And what did they learn from what Google did at Borg or how did uh, Mesos do it? Or how did all these, it wasn't a specific, this is a Kubernetes book. This is now a, how do you run an orchestrator on top, you know, to do containers? And how do you actually deploy infrastructure into a cloud environment? So we started looking at a lot of the patterns that NetBid and, and what all these other companies that have done it in the cloud for a long time. And we tried to tease out some of those patterns. And then we, we tried to write about the patterns, really. It was, it was, hey, I think it should be done or how these companies have succeeded doing it. Here are some implementations and here are some general guidelines on tools that might implement those things. But it's not a specific, like, you have to use this tool to be cloud native. It was definitely hmm. about uh, being declarative in the cloud and, and not not focusing on uh, imperative scripting or very specific like per node based config management or all these things that have historically been the focus of operations and infrastructure and more take a broader look about how do you just rely on what Amazon provides in RDS or what Google provides in App Engine or all these other tools and says, okay, if you can use those things, use them for sure because that is how you get to the cloud fastest and, and don't worry don't like migrate all your vms because that's just going to bring all the legacy stuff you have along with now you don't control the hardware and and a lot of people are doing that and saying oh, i'm just gonna lift and shift in the cloud and i'm cloud native right I'm like no, no no you just have you're renting power from someone else uh, but now you don't control anything do you talk at all in the book about uh why an organization would want to embrace cloud native or is that implied? Is it <laughs> if they bought the book, does that suggest an interest? No, we definitely have the first couple of chapters have uh, benefits um, outlined there, as well as why you wouldn't want to. Um, so, can the, you tell me some of those? Tell me some of the why I'd want to and why I wouldn't want to. Um, really, it's about uh, being able to scale. A lot of it's about being able to scale your your systems more than your people, because people just don't scale, and people make mistakes, and people uh, aren't good at doing the same thing over and over again whereas you can have declarative things set in policy and in you know how your infrastructure should look that the computer hey guess what the computer will do that over and over again and be really good at it um but it's also about this it's more of a two-way relationship with infrastructure where uh chris had, had to me at least coined the term infrastructure as software rather than infrastructure as code which has always been this thing for config management where like you declare everything in code but now in a cloud native environment, you actually want software that's actually managing that. It's not just a one way you push code up and then something happens. It's actually, you have this interface that mutates how the infrastructure looks on both sides where it actually will push back to a storage engine and say like, oh, well, you gave me this container to run. Here's some things that I added to that, metadata about it or labels or, or things that you also need to be able to run this thing at scale. Um, so that's those are kind of some of the benefits. And some of the reasons we really discovered that you wouldn't want to run cloud native infrastructure are situations where um, cloud, the, the cloud itself uh, iterates too quickly for you, or it's, mm. it moves at a pace of innovation that 
will quickly leave you behind and leave you desperately trying to catch up and, and in a broken state in a lot of cases where you say like, oh, I can't innovate that fast because I either have uh, my policy doesn't allow me to, or my processes are too slow, or I have some other regulations that don't allow me to do these things. Those are absolutely situations where you don't want to adopt the cloud environment because you're just gonna be fighting all to your organization where your organization doesn't allow you to do these things, or those are governmental, or there's some other thing that, that presses your technology to not work in a, you know, highly dynamic, you know, fast turnover type of environment. So are, have you found that there are certain industries that are more likely to fall into that category where they'll get behind quickly in, in a situation like that where they've adopted? Yeah, and we didn't break it down really, but I mean, things like uh, healthcare and banking are, are too highly regulated that you need to have a lot of, there's a lot of process to do anything. And, and typically they set up these big extravagant systems that work together and they're, they're very manually tweaked and, and, and everything works together just so, but it's not common interfaces. It's like, oh, well, I needed this, you know, config file here and someone actually goes in SSH and, and does that thing. And, and which is obviously not the way to do it. Um, but, but situations where you build this big system and then you just like ship that one system altogether rather than microservice patterns is, is one that has clean interfaces between applications and those applications can churn a lot faster and you can iterate on those applications in a smaller segment. And, and in order to be able to do that, you actually need to do a lot of work in how your org structure is, how your organization is just structured and how work gets done. And it's not so much about, oh, I did this one thing in Go and this one's in Ruby, but really how does the team manage those things and how is the organization structured to be able to ship those things and iterate on them fast? Wow. So what if you're a forward looking, you know, administrator at one of these companies and, you know, and you see the benefits of cloud or of cloud native specifically, and you, you want to move in that direction. I mean, is that just something, a, a dream they need to kill and <laughs> put in a box on the side, get into a new industry? Or do you see these industries moving in that direction just more slowly? I don't see all industries moving in that direction. Yeah, uh, I definitely could see uh, them, any, any organization I think can move in that direction if they start with the people. It's mm. really about people first. And, and if you get, you can't just like tell everyone, okay, we're gonna use this new thing, go have at it. Cause they're gonna do the same things they did before in this new environment or, or try to work their way around these new restrictions or whatever it is in the cloud environment where they're like, oh, I don't manage the VM. Okay, well, I'm gonna manage something there. And, and I, I need to have some sort of control that I had before. But really, in a cloud native environment, really you're you're renting servers from someone else, so you have to give up a lot of that control and build in similar uh, insights and control at different layers of the stack. And you can't say, oh, "I need to do it at the operating system," or "I need to do it at the," you know, "my BIOS needs to be configured this way." It's like, no, no, you don't control that anymore. You you don't have a RAID control. You don't set your RAID controller anymore. You have to do redundancy in the application now. Wow. So. <laughs> So thinking about this book, then you talk a little bit in the beginning then about why you would want to do it or not do it. And then you, you said you kind of specifically don't say how exactly to go there. You're, it's more about looking for patterns or recognizing patterns or exploiting patterns. Who's the target audience for this book? Uh, at first, it was very broad. And, and we narrowed that focus more towards um, more the people. I, it, was, it was really focused on a lot, a lot of the chapters are focused on the engineers that are doing the work. Um, mm -hmm. Specifically, didn't want to say infrastructure versus developer engineers because 
they can do both. It's not a like ops and devs sort of thing. It is just a, you're an engineer, you are interested in this stuff and you're passionate about it. Here's some patterns that, that you should be looking at. Um, but it also could go like a, a, a level above that where management can actually look at it and say, I, I tried, we try to put a lot of stuff in there for how to manage the people or how to at least look at how team structures have been at, why is, Net, why is Netflix successful in the cloud? It's not because they did everything in Amazon is because their org chart and their structure for allowing people to be innovative and and work in a highly efficient manner, they they set that up in the organization. It didn't matter if they were at Amazon or Google or on-prem, but they had the people and the process in place to do that in a, a very fast-paced environment. So wait, let's go down that rat hole for a minute. What uh, what is unique about this Netflix setup? Is this someone that is this something that's really well known that that they have a unique uh, arrangement? Yeah, I definitely, they have a unique, I mean, it's not every, every organization has a unique culture. Right. The Netflix culture deck is pretty famous in the technology world where they've been iterating on that for a very long time. I forget how many hundreds of slides it is now, um, but it's very specific about, you know, they empower engineers to do what's right without needing to go through a lot of process. And they empower people to build systems that they see as a need and, and they're allowed to do that without saying, oh, I need to, you know, wait six months to buy hardware or to get a sign off on a bill or something like that. They can, they can just quickly iterate on, this is where I think I need to go. This is how I'm going to fail quickly if it doesn't work out. And this is how we can go somewhere else. And Google has a similar culture where um, they're allowed people to, you know, the whole 20% time, they can explore new things and they can, they can try new th experiments out and fail on those experiments if, if they don't work out. Um, but they also can have other engineers join them on their projects. Like, mm -hmm from what I've heard on the outside, it's uh, engineers can, you can have people join your project if you can just convince them essentially that they want to join. And so it's a very fluid environment where, where an engineer can say like, oh, well, I want to work on this project for six months. And then, oh, that other project over here looks interesting. And I feel like I have a lot to give there. And so we can, we can work on that now. And it's, it's not as much of a top-down hierarchy where it's a very bottoms up. Engineers can figure out where the need is and then you know, solve that problem. Mm, yeah, we talk about DevOps on this show a lot, and this is a lot more than DevOps, right? This is, <laughs> and this isn't getting rid of DevOps. This is definitely you know building on top of and, and working with DevOps practices. Where DevOps is very much about again about people and about culture and bringing people working together closely. And in the whole cloud native environment is is very similar, where it's it's doing the same stuff, but uh, possibly with a slightly different focus um, from you know just from my involvement with DevOps, where DevOps adopts a lot of tools to allow allow people to get the process correct and, and quickly iterate on things, where sometimes cloud native takes a bigger, like a higher level view of what you're actually solving. And it's not, I need to get this app out or I need to iterate fast on this app. It's let's look at this holistically and see how this thing impacts everything else and, and move all at once with smaller iterations on every application, but but be able to move the entire uh, environment forward. Cool, cool, that totally makes sense. Hey, um, so, you know, in talking about this book, and I don't want to abandon the book yet because we haven't, um, we, we need to talk about it more. We haven't even mentioned the name of the book. Let's do that. Yeah, Cloud Native Infrastructure um, was, was the title chosen. Um, and it, it really, it, there's actually, there's a landing page, uh, cnibook.info that we set up that has a bunch of links. There's some free free copies that I don't know if, there's some sponsorships. I know there's new sponsorships probably coming out that you can go download 
the ebook for free. Uh, I know a couple podcasts have it for free that they give out links. Um, so typically, I put those on the cnibook.info site where you can just go there if you don't want to pay for it. Absolutely, just go click the button, get the free ebook. But there's also links to Amazon or wherever else. And you mentioned your co-author's name ever so briefly, but what's her full name? I think you said her first name. What was it? And Chris Nova. Chris Nova. Do you guys yeah, work at the same company or? No, we met through uh, a th uh, someone else that was working at, um, at the time it was uh, Deus that got bought by, bought by Microsoft. And so um, she introduced us. And then uh, we, I had known Chris just through the Kubernetes community because Chris was running the Amazon uh, not working the SIG special interest group. And so Chris was heavily involved with running Kubernetes on top of Amazon already. And so kind of getting a lot of the best practices for people and, and doing weekly calls and just getting people updated. And it was this was two years ago that you know she was running a lot of that stuff and Kubernetes was so young at the time that it, it was obviously very hard for people to figure out. And so um, when I was introduced to her, we just did a call and we really hit it off where a lot of the areas that I was weak at, where mm -hmm. I was not very good at like specific you know cloud deployments and, and running a lot of these systems in production in the cloud where i was more i was a little better at the patterns and, and looking at people in process and so we really just kind of clicked with we were strong in areas where the other person was weak and i think that helped a lot um throughout writing the book and, and i think the book is, is a lot stronger because both of us were kind of together rather than just you know a single person trying to like iterate in their own head and not have feedback Nice, nice. So it's a, the the book is available, I assume, online. It sounds like it's available at the occasional trade show, and um, and who's the publisher? O'Reilly. O'Reilly, great. The well-known publisher of those type of manuals. Yeah. Um. So, I, in some of the bios I've seen uh, online about you, you mentioned your passion for open source. Obviously, that would be a big part of your life if you're involved in uh, the Kubernetes community and CNCF. But uh, talk to me a little bit about that. Um. How did you get involved in that? Is it is it a big part of your actual job, or is it something you kind of do on the side? And 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 how did you get so involved in open source? I started again through a student worker at college, where someone had introduced me to an Opix CD, where there's like, oh, you could boot Linux off this CD, and I was like, what's Linux? I had no idea. Um, <laughs> just kind of magical thing that you know could fix uh, Windows computers, and I just kind of started looking at it some more, and and I was or a poor college student and so realized when I actually got a computer that was a hand-me-down from someone it had an old operating system I needed to put something on there so I was like well let's find this Linux thing and Ubuntu 1505 uh no five yeah or something like it. it was no five I don't know super early it was the second release of Ubuntu whenever that was um, I remember they actually were mail out CDs. And so like, I didn't have a CD burner. So they mailed me a CD and I put that on my computer and I was like, wow, this is amazing. And, and just kind of like started learning things from there. Um, I really started getting involved in a community aspect with uh, Linux Mint. Um, there's a, a, an offshoot of Ubuntu. And I was just kind of in their forums because I was in there a lot because I always needed help. And I started being able to give help back um, because I started learning a few things. And there was a call to start a podcast. They're like, hey, Linux Mint wants a podcast. Um, can we, anyone out there that wants to do this? And I had never listened to a podcast before. I didn't know what podcasts were. I'll do it. That sounds like fun. And so me and one other person, uh, both of us had never recorded a podcast before. I didn't even have a microphone. So we just, we were like, okay, well, let's start this thing. We didn't know what to do. So we just started talking about stuff. And uh, for about two years, uh, we both ran the, the Mintcast podcast. It's still going on, which is awesome. 
uh, but we did the first 50 episodes. They're in like the 200 something now. Um, but yeah, we, we just kind of got involved there and I, I realized that open source wasn't all about being able to, to be a developer and be able to code, but just be able to give back time. And really time is a, a crucial component of open source where people are dedicating, you know, they're volunteering their time, whatever their skill set is. It's, it's really about getting the time from the people to do whatever is needed in that community. And, and from that, yeah, we I did open source, you know, did the podcast and then started doing like some side writing for some websites and, and started learning more and more and then kind of got into operations uh, full time after college. And, and then from there I was, I was already really liked Linux and, and the writing I did on different blogs and stuff like that was all specifically Linux based. So I was really heavy into just the Linux community and, and forums and, and giving back there, not even in code at all. Um, but then after that, getting into like config management areas where I was I was in charge of doing config management at you know at a job and and then realizing how much the communities brought the config management tooling along where it wasn't just about here's a tool we just dropped it online and, and you use it but it was really about uh, being able to like talk to someone about it and go on IRC and figure out like how I was doing something wrong or how something should be done and and kind of work through like you know puppet and, and uh, Salt and Ansible and just kind of like figuring out how those tools worked and then seeing how the communities worked um, was really fascinating. And, and from that, even branching out to going to conferences where it was just kind of, you know, oh, there's a the uh, Southern California Linux Expo was my first conference I ever went to. And it was like right when I had started the podcast and I actually talked about the podcast there. I was like, I'd never given a talk. I'd never gone to a conference before. And I was just like, oh, well, let's let's go talk about the podcast if someone's interested. And, and then just starting to meet people face to face and, and see what they were, what their problems were, what they were dealing with and, and how they were you know, using open source tools. So what would you say are it sounds like you're, you're very involved in multiple open source communities and, and you've made the best of the opportunities they present. Uh, what would you what kind of advice would you pass along to someone who's just considering or just getting their feet wet? Uh, within open source community, what, what tips would you pass along to them for success and for get every, getting everything out of it they can? Yeah, for me, I mean, it was really about volunteering time. It doesn't matter what your skill sets are. It's, it matters if you can provide time. And, and you don't know what skill sets the community needs. And so you should, if you can offer time and say, hey, I can do this for an hour a week or two hours a week or you know, 30 minutes a day or something like that, just go learn, like go troll through forums or, or GitHub repos or something like that and just find where it looks like there's a need, doesn't matter what you can do. If, if you can do something and understand what's going on at all and just offer a little bit of time, that's the most valuable thing in, in open source, in my opinion, is, is being able to offer that time and then, and then not, don't even worry about the technology, focus on the people and, and what are people trying to do with it and what are the, not the people that are developing it and also the users. And, and if you can bridge that gap and just have empathy for the actual community and, and build a community, that's super important for a healthy community. So just a willingness to raise your hand, roll with whatever it is they need. Right, yeah, it's like, like I said, I mean, I volunteered to do a podcast that I had never done before. <laughs> I've been, even looking back from, I mean, having hindsight on that was like, that was the most important thing I could have done for mm. my career. Like, because of that, because I volunteered to do a podcast that I had never done before in my life, no coding skills, no nothing, I was able to, you know, get a side job writing about it and then get into operations and then get into, and so it's like one thing after another where now I'm, you know, I get to work on super fun technology and, and make movies with that technology. And, and it really goes back to, you know, 10, like, oh, yeah, I'll do a podcast. 
and, and then go to a conference and, and just keep raising my hand and i helped out at booths at scale and I, I kept just saying like yeah like that i can offer some time for that and and it doesn't matter what my skill set was like i volunteered for booths and really what they needed was people to move boxes and stand there like that's all they needed like i didn't <laughs> did someone a person that could have empathy for a customer that came up or not even a customer just a user that came up and said what is this thing what does it do for me and, and how can i use it and then just explain some of that stuff i feel like that's one of the neat things about the open source communities uh that there's just so much opportunity out there waiting to be taken advantage of um and when i think about the different communities i think um you know i I don't know a ton of them. I know a handful of them. And I, I know that for my involvement in them, they have different personalities. What would you say is some of the most inclusive and welcoming um, communities easiest to get involved in? I mean, I, I'd be very biased no matter what. <laughs> no matter what, because I've had good and bad experiences with Have you? communities that say that they're open and, and I try to go into it and then I had a bad experience. And so I didn't, I didn't go back to the community just because my initial reaction to it was like oh well no one wanted to help me i didn't i didn't meet the right person at the first the first time and so that was hard to go back to that right and that can be just one project lead within the community right it may not even reflect the entire community it's just one project and one grumpy project lead exactly i mean i'm right now i'm heavily involved in kubernetes and the cncf projects but i'm not blind to realize that other people have bad experiences with those projects and and there's a lot of things that the community needs to do to realize that and and keep that in their mindset and say like hey guess what there's still new users coming and how is that experience for them and what are we doing to make this experience better for them right and a lot of communities have lost sight of that where uh i felt like that with a lot of the config management tools where they got to such a big point where they were so big that they lost track of the new users, even though there was, I mean, there's still people that are, you know, discovering config, config management tools and, and getting onboarded with them. A lot of those communities have shifted focus back to that. But at some point when the community gets so large, it's hard to then say, oh, what is it like for someone that's new? And, and how do we make sure that they have a good experience and not only can use the tool, but then can also, they'll be inspired to give back because they were inspired initially, you know, they were given so much when they first came on that they want to give that to the next generation or the next whatever group of people coming into the project. Right. And I can see how it'd be easy to lose that. I mean, you start getting focused on goals for the project itself and for the community. And it's easiest to work with people who are already on board, understand the lingo, understand what those goals are, why we're shooting for them and can help now instead of teaching that person, bringing in that person who is going to be able to help with the next set of goals, you know? And, and typically that's, I mean, that's always been my motivation to give back because I've always been, any environment, any community where I'm giving back was probably a community where I was given a good experience when I was onboarded. And, mm. and I had problems initially and someone helped me with it, whether it was in Slack or IRC or through, you know, GitHub. And, and then I said, wow, that was a really good experience. I want to make that even a better experience for the next person and so the next person that interacts with me will also say like wow that was great i want to do the same thing and, and constantly for me it's always just trying to give back to the community because the community for me has already you know provided so much so you've mentioned a couple communities you're currently quite active with uh kubernetes and um, cncf the cloud native computing foundation for those folks who don't know um what's going on with those is there anything interesting that we should be excited about that's coming up with either or i assume that it's a pretty fast uh, rate of churn. Very much is so. Yeah. I mean, Kubernetes is just moving at breakneck speeds. Um, and that's, that's one of those areas where I tried to call that out a little bit in the book as well, where if you 
handle traditional infrastructure and traditional infrastructure management platforms where you're buying this product that you, you know, took a six month install period and you're like, okay, now that's there. We can use this version of, you know, VMware or Cloud Foundry or whatever the tool is. It was this, you know, a big project that you put in place. Um, Kubernetes is having releases every quarter. Like you're not going to catch up. You're not going to maintain that when, you, you know, you'll have a dedicated team to try to keep up with those things. And I think more and more projects will move to that in the future where releases aren't this once a year or once every other year big thing. It's you need to iterate on this fast and be able to trust that, I guess, give up some control over we did this giant project and 10 people worked on it for this long. And, and this is how it looks now. And this is all the documentation because all that's out of date. And Kubernetes moves so quickly that even the, it's not even like 2.0, but like the 1.9 to 1.10 releases have a bunch of changes in them and mm. so many extra controls and security and all these features on top of it that every everyone involved in the community is building and because they see the need somewhere, whether it's in an organization or from a different project and they say, this is how we need to go forward. And, and it's great because it's open and there's a lot of design docs around why that path was chosen and, and a lot of good debate about if it's the right solution or where it should and shouldn't be used, um, which is great, I, I think. Just there's a lot of closed doors in, in some projects where it's like, oh, we're open source, but guess what? Like we're going to make all the decisions behind doors, and, and you don't get to be involved. Where in the, the CNCF has done a really good job about all their projects are 100% open. Yes, you have to find the documentation, or you have to find are <laughs> or something along those lines. It's not always clear because some projects do it differently and especially with kubernetes where there's so much stuff happening um, but i think that having being able to keep up to date is no one's going to be able to i was like i'm involved in the community i have been for years and i have no idea until i look at you know some of the final prs or the change log for a release everything that made it in right and you said there that kubernetes is on a quarterly release i mean i was just talking to our guest last week who's really involved in istio they're on a monthly release I can't imagine. And, and I really look at it, I think about those companies that are kind of coming from a traditional, traditional setup, you know, they've got a lot of legacy software and hardware and God, that makes it seem like a huge leap. How do you get over to cloud native? Um, and I don't even know if I'm asking this question actually, or just kind of throwing it out there. Um, I guess what happens to those companies? Do they eventually have to abandon some of those old software platforms? Cause they just cannot be ported over, uh, to the cloud and they weren't written for the cloud? Yeah, I mean, there are definitely, I mean, there's applications that are uh, not easy or not, or not available to automate. I mean, this was a problem a long time ago where, you know, uh, Windows applications, you couldn't automate the install unless it was like an MSI or some Linux applications like, oh, required some sort of click through or, or something that was manually configured and you just, you literally could not automate that. And, and people sure wrote hacks about like, oh, make the mouse click here at this time or something like that. Um, software that's written that way, yeah, you're not gonna be able to carry that forward into a, a highly dynamic environment. <sighs> a lot of the larger projects I think are trying to move towards that. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it really is, is dealing with how do you change the process around that? Because even larger projects like VMware has you know, how many people, how many organizations are on the newest release of VMware? Probably not many. It's like a, a lot of them are on one or two old releases because they have a big process and project involved in updating that. And I'm sure VMware has ways to be automated in a lot of ways. Um, you know, getting hypervisors down and updating the software. I'm, I'm sure you can do a lot of that stuff there. 
maybe not everything, but you know, <laughs> software is always getting better for that. And, and really it's about the process to manage that software. Like what is your process involved in releasing a new version of VMware in your organization? And if that is, if that is a, a six month project, then guess what? You're not going to keep up. If it is, you know, hey, here's automation that VMware provides or uh, Kubernetes provides or whoever it is that's providing this infrastructure, this underlying infrastructure that moves quickly. Mm -hmm. If you can release some control and trust them to, uh, or put some trust in the system to be able to update itself, um, you can move a lot faster and you don't have to have all the process around it. And, and organizations get a lot of that when they move to a cloud. When they say, hey, I'm going to go into Amazon, and guess what? Amazon hosts my MySQL database, or Amazon hosts my whatever service. When you're using software as a service model, that just comes with it, because you literally are paying for that, that they manage it. And a lot of software, I think, will be moving more towards software as a service, um, just in general, even inside of orgs, where inside the organization, you say, oh, who manages this thing? Like, I don't know, that's now this team, and that team provides it to everyone else as a software endpoint, where it's no longer I need to send emails or open this ticket. Like, no, it's, it should be a self-service thing even inside of organizations. And that is called out in the book where it doesn't matter if you're actually in a public cloud uh, to run cloud-native infrastructure. If you run it on-prem, you have to deal with a lot of other layers of the stack that you wouldn't have to in Amazon or Google or Microsoft. But you can do it. So look at what Amazon, Google, and Microsoft are doing. Like, they literally run the hardware. Right. Like, they don't... They can't farm this out to another cloud. So, like, there is a way to run hardware at scale and in that type of environment. Yeah, their public cloud is the ultimate private cloud in, in a way, right? Right, it, it is, and, and that's what. And look at um, who was it? Uh, Oracle open. Up, they have their their cloud their cloud environments, and the the number that I had heard from a talk, whether it's true or not, I don't know. Uh, they had hired, I think it was fifty thousand developers to build that. Like, to everyone got on board to build this cloud environment for them. And it's like, if you're ready for that level of commitment and just know it's going to be a lot more work and a lot more people need to be involved to build it on-prem uh, rather than go to Amazon or Google or Microsoft, um, you have to be prepared for that. But it's not impossible. It's, you know, obviously it's, obviously people can do it. Yeah, it sounds like you would just have to hire the people who are determined and who have at least some sense of what it's going to take to get us off this old software and hardware and move us to a cloud native environment, whether it's, you know, buying, you know, a ton of new software, a ton of new hardware, just junking what you had, or if there's a way to kind of do it as a SaaS, uh, you know, situation where you're subscribing to that software, it, it just seems like you need the right folks who are mentally committed to making the change because it's a heavy lift. Right. And you need the right process involved. Cause I mean, you could still say, we're going to buy all this new software that all says it's, it has the buzzwords cloud native in it. You can run Kubernetes in a very non-cloud native way. Absolutely, 100% you can. That's that's not even a doubt. Um, where you can hand edit Kubernetes config and just say, like, oh, I'm going to spin up all these. And you can even run it in Amazon. You can spin up a bunch of VMs and go hand edit the files. And guess what? That's not cloud native. Like that's Kubernetes running in a cloud, but it's not updating itself. And it's not, you're losing a lot of the functionality and a lot of the benefit to the business by doing things that way. So, and so if you, what's if the you definition of cloud native then? Is it is it all does is it require a certain level of automation or what would you say are kind of the key factors that make something cloud native versus not Boy, i actually wish i had that chapter up in the book because i <laughs> sorry i put you on the spot for a few months and i cannot remember it right now but really it's it's in my opinion i mean it again it deals with the people in the process as much as it deals with the technology i don't care if you're running kubernetes or mesos or nomad or stalker swarm whatever it is 
the process involved in managing that infrastructure, at least as far as infrastructure is concerned, because cloud native applications are a separate sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, there's 12 factor apps. And there's a lot of other definitions around what the application stack should look like for something to be a cloud native. Infrastructure is slightly different because it is underneath the application. And, and for infrastructure, it's typically about managing how that infrastructure gets put in place mm. and making sure that it is um, not only you know automated and, and defined through um, policies and through code, but also that you have this sort of two-way relationship with software where um, there's a, an interface that you actually interact with that does all your infrastructure deployments. And you can do look at um, uh, Chaos Monkey from Netflix, mm -hmm. where they were introducing chaos in the system to be able to define things and make sure things would self-heal. But that Chaos Monkey is actually a form of infrastructure testing through software, where the monkey itself, the, the monkey, the, this piece of software that's running is an interface that they define policies to, and then it mutates state back and forth with what's in the infrastructure, and then what they actually did back into what you're looking at what your policy actually wanted to find. And so it's a way of testing production, and that is a component of being able to, like right now, I'm, I test infrastructure not in a cloud by setting up, I build redundancy in RAID, and I, I make sure things don't fail. In a cloud environment, you have to be prepared for it to fail, and, and you have to have software that can control not only verifying that it's correct still, that it's tested, but also that it heals properly and that things get deployed properly and scale properly, automated without people. And you need process in place that do those things. That helps a lot. I'm glad I'm glad we touched on that because I really have been talking about um, cloud native like applications and the infrastructure are just a one one package and they're they're not. You're right. They're two totally different things. Yeah, in a lot of cases, I mean cloud cloud native applications are typically defined, you know, or at least historically defined on running on a PaaS, where you don't control anything under your application and you define everything at that point where your application is all you really care about and you don't need to worry about a VM or uh, you know, routing rules or network or storage. Everything else is an external service to you where you don't store state and you use uh, S3 and, and you don't you know, care about routing rules because that's an ELB or something like that. And so you care about the application itself is, is very small and allows faster iteration and more um, developers to kind of iterate on those faster because they are defined a certain way. Infrastructure, because it's below that, it, can't farm out everything. Um, but in, in most cases, if you are in a cloud environment, absolutely use the services they provide. And if you're not in a cloud environment, and you're trying to do it on-prem, uh, there should be a defined separation between where the hardware is and what services people interact with. They should not be sending emails to get a VM or a hardware. They should be calling an API, and then the API declaratively makes that thing happen for them. Awesome. Awesome. That helps a lot. That really helps a lot. So anything else we should know about the book other than where, what's the name of it again? Cloud Native Infrastructure. Cloud Native Infrastructure. Um, we know where it's available. Um, we don't know where you're going to be speaking next. Do you have any uh, speaking engagements scheduled? Yeah, I actually, uh, my talk was um, <clears throat> accepted to the SoCal Linux Expo, or SCALE, as, as it's commonly uh, called, in March. Um, beginning of March, I actually have a talk on cloud native infrastructure at scale. Um, so I'll be speaking there. Uh, my co-author Chris, she does a lot more talks than I do. Um, so you should, you can probably find her at various talks. She's um, working for Heptio, doing um, uh, a lot of their uh, uh, developer relations, and so she's heavily involved in Kubernetes and in uh, cloud native 
infrastructure and everything that Hepio is trying to do. And so she's been giving talks. She's done a, a cloud native cloud native infrastructure talk a few times at conferences uh, like HashiConf and a couple smaller meetups as well. So great. So people can connect with you at uh, the Linux Expo, Southern California Linux yeah. Expo. In a lot of cases for both of us, I'm, we're both on Twitter quite a bit. Um, That's what I was going to ask, Twitter handles. <laughs> yeah, so I'm uh, at Rothgar, R-O-T-H-G-A-R. Um, and then she's uh, Chris Nova, Chris underscore underscore Nova, uh, K-R-I-S, and then N-O-V-E. No, sorry, N-O-V-A. <laughs> great. Um, so anybody who's enjoyed this and would like to learn more about what these guys are working on or has you know, questions uh, about uh, cloud native infrastructure, sounds like you would be the two folks to uh, start that conversation with or, or the open source community. I imagine you'd be open to fielding some questions about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm always excited to get people involved in open source just to be able to you know, show them what the community is like and how welcoming a lot of the communities are. Um, and then obviously, both of us are very passionate about the infrastructure layer and how how you should be defining things for your infrastructure, especially in cloud environments. Great. Well, Justin, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate uh, you sharing what you know with us. I, I definitely learned some things. I'm hoping the audience did as well. And uh, I look forward to seeing you out there uh, on the conference circuit. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, thanks. Bye-bye, everybody.